All right, well, good morning. Welcome to the new Foundations Room. So, um, like I just said, we're going to be doing, so if you'd been in the old Foundations class that is now in here, we're going to be continuing on with the new material. We're starting a new section on the nature of the church. We're also going to be running, uh, we're going back to section two, and that'll be upstairs, and those will both run concurrently. So, if you've already had that content, you probably do want to stay in here, but if you have new friends that are coming and they want to see some of the older content that we'd covered last year, probably upstairs would be a good place to go. So uh, as we get started, Russell, do you want to pray for us? All right, so as I mentioned, we're starting a new section. We're going to be looking at the church. So this week, we're going to be looking at the nature of the church, and this is going to kind of set the foundation for our subsequent discussions. And then in later weeks, we're going to be looking at the church's worship, the creeds of the church, the leadership of the church, ordinances, membership. So this is going to be a a five- or six-week series in total. And hopefully what we're going to do today is answer some foundational questions that are going to help guide the rest of that conversation. Uh, And so the the three main points that we kind of have today are hopefully going to walk us through answering what is the church, who's in the church, and then how is the church to function. And tying that all together, you see the big idea printed at the top of your page. This is the church is the institution of believers saved by grace, called to serve as Christ's body. And that this uniquely demonstrates God's wisdom in reconciling sinners to himself and unifying them in service to one another. Um, so to do that, we're going to walk through the first couple chapters of Ephesians. Um, so we're not going to do it expositionally. There's a lot in there that we're not going to be able to hit. But we are going to look at it with respect to the questions that we're asking of what is the church, who is the church, and then how is the church to function. Um, so that just takes us to our first point then, one calling. And the, the question that we're hoping to answer here is what is the church? Um, maybe one more caveat kind of as we launch into this. When we say the church, there's really two different churches that we could be talking about. One is the universal church that describes all believers at all times and all places. And the other is the local church, the specific assembly of believers that come together under our common confession, a localized body. And I think that most of our comments are really have in mind the local church, though certainly what we say often will also apply to the universal church, but just wanted to clarify that kind of up front. Um, all right, so we're going to start off in Ephesians chapter 1 in the very first verse. Um, can someone read for us the first two verses of Ephesians? <clears throat> Thanks, Russell. So I guess the first question, just as we come here, is who is Paul writing to? Who's Paul's audience that he has in mind? Yeah, so, so saints, it's plural. I think that's important to remember. 
because lots of times then when we read through the rest of Ephesians, you're going to see a lot of yous. I think most of those yous are really plural yous, right? I don't think it's wrong to read it individually and say this applies to me personally when it's talking about you were redeemed, you were ransomed, you were chosen. But Paul's bigger purpose here is to talk to an entire church, to an entire body and group of believers. And so I think it's helpful to kind of remember that as we go along. Um, He's also talking to a specific local congregation in Ephesus. And so what we're going to read through here, I think we uh, we can pull out and apply as things that Paul has in mind for the local church and for the body of believers. Um, And so the first thing that I think we're going to see is just that the the church is an institution that is created by God. That's point A there in your outline. The church, I think it's important to also remember the church is not an institution that has always existed, right? So before Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit descends after Christ has gone back up to heaven, the church is not an institution that exists. It comes into existence in a particular time and a particular place for the purposes of God. And it's something that that God really does through his spirit and through his calling on the lives of believers. Um, So we're going to read, we're going to quickly just read through uh, verses 3 through 14. And while we do this, um, let's take note of who the actor is that's taking the actions. And then let's talk about what the actions are that are actually being taken. Um, So can someone read for me verses 3 through 14? Thanks, Dave. So who's, who's the actor in verses 3 through 14? God. Yeah. There's a lot of actions, right? And God is always the actor in all of those different actions. So just throw out for me, what are some of the actions that you see God taking there in that, in that section, that God, actions that God takes for his church? Mm-hmm. Predestined. predestined us. He blessed us. He predestined us. Chose. He chose us. Adopted. Adopted. Lavished riches of grace 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, made known, revealed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you guys hit most of them there. Maybe you could also just throw in in verse 7 that he's provided redemption for us. Verse 11, that we've obtained an inheritance through him. Verse 13, that he's sealed us with the promise of his spirit. And there's a lot of theological meat going on here about the very specific things that God has done for his church. I think it's important to note up front that this is something that, that God has done. This is not something that the church is doing. As Paul starts off and kind of provides the foundation that he wants to provide for the Ephesus church. Like he wants them to know that, that God is acting and these are all the amazing things that God has done for his people. And I think that's really helpful to keep that in mind and in view when we're looking at the church because I think it's really tempting for us to start to let um, kind of our ideas, our man-made ideas kind of filter into how we see the concept of the church. And so maybe if we're talking about churches that believe that man's authority can be binding on what we understand the church to be, so like the Catholic Church, we would understand that that's not actually true because God is the one that defines and calls and builds his church. It's, it does not up to man's authority. Um, I think it also helps guard against the, the idea that, that any one person in the church, that it's like their church. So the elders, this isn't our church. We're not like CEOs that get to pick the direction of where we're going. It's not like we get in and vote, what do we want to do with the church? It doesn't work that way. God's already told us what we want to do with the church. And it's our job to faithfully shepherd in that direction. Um, I think it also helps maybe in the sense that this isn't, the church isn't something that can just be malleable to culture. So as culture goes one direction, the church is calling primarily is to say faithful to God, who is the one who institutes and calls and defines the church. So I think this is a really helpful theological concept to keep up front in our minds as we come through and come to understanding what is Christ's church. Um, so that takes us to the next point. So the, the, first, the first point under one calling is just that the, the church is something that God has built. The next two points are really going to be about characteristics of the people that God has called into that church. And so the first one is just that the church are, consists of those that are called to hope and to trust in God. Can someone read for me uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 15 through 21? Above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thanks, Johnny. So Paul has this habit of having a lot of run-on sentences that kind of go on forever. There may have been a period in there, maybe one. (laughs) But it's a lot of words and a lot of concepts kind of packed into one. What would you say is kind of the the main point? What is the the central thing or the the takeaway that Paul is praying for the church kind of in that that chunk? If you had to put it in the plain language, simple words, maybe how how would you phrase that? Know what God has done. Mm. That's good. Yep. Any other thoughts? completely agree with both of those answers. I think the, the operative kind of key thing that Paul's praying for is right there in 18 that you may know, right? And everything else that he's kind of praying around this is that you would have the strength to know this. These are the things that I want you to know. But, but God wants his church to know things about him. God has revealed himself to the church and God has called his church to hope and to trust and in him and in him alone. I think that this really helps set for the church the, the priority that we place on the Word of God and making the Word of God known. Because our prayer really is the same prayer that Paul has. We want people to know God. We want to have the eyes of their heart enlightened, as he said there, so they can come to a saving knowledge and faith of him. And we understand that only happens when people see God for who he truly is and they see themselves for who they truly are, and that comes to the Word of, of Scripture. So I think Paul talks about this elsewhere in terms of setting the priorities for the church. In, uh, in 2 Timothy, I think, is a good place. So in, in chapter 3, where he's talking about how all scripture is inspired by God. And in chapter 4, where he then moves and talks about that we need to, to preach the word. We need to be ready in season and out of season with the word of God to minister. I think that a lot of this comes from this foundational hope. The, the reason that we preach the Word of God and the reason that we want to make it known is because we want to make God known and we want to reveal Him. We want people to know and to love and to trust their Heavenly Father. Um, I also think there's, man, there's just a lot of goodness in here. I think it would make some really sweet meditations just to, to sit back and to think about the immeasurable greatness of the power of God and even in your own personal life. Um, where you've seen that actually happen. Like, where has the immeasurable greatness of God applied in your life? Or, Kyle, where has it happened in, in your life? Because I think we've all, we've all seen this. I don't know if we often take time to, to step back and to catalog it and to remember and to praise God for the way that he's worked in making himself known to us. Um, so that's the first point. The church is called to hope and to trust in God that we may know him, delight in him, savor him. But the church uh, is also, point C, comprised of those who are saved by grace through faith. So we've been called out of darkness. We've been called out of death. We've been made new and we've been 
brought from death to life. Can someone read uh, verses um, 4 through 9 of chapter 2? Chapter 2, verse 4 through 9. So just there at the end, maybe parenthetical thought, it's a gift of God, kind of going back to this is something that God has done. Um, but I think it's also important to, to note that, that that but there in verse 4, we didn't read it, but in the first three verses, Paul's describing the fact that we were once dead. We were once spiritually unable to know God. We were once unable to see him and treasure him for as he is. But God took action. God didn't leave us there. He called us out of darkness, and he called us into his marvelous light. And it's through his grace, then, um, that he's saved us, that he's made us alive. He's seated us in the heavenly places and shown us immeasurable riches. Um, And I think where this kind of hits home for the doctrine of the church and how we think about the church, and, and one way certainly is just in membership, right? So in membership... We take it seriously because the church does not want to welcome in and affirm as believers those that have not been made alive, those that are still spiritually dead. Um, so I feel like John, John Henderson's not here. I would, I would tell him to this too. I feel like John Henderson is kind of our old dead guy. We quote him kind of like that. He's neither old nor dead. He's very much alive. But he has a lot of great wisdom. So I, I feel like I think of him in that category. Um, <laughs> anyways. John Henderson told me, (laughs) membership does not make a local church. Membership tries to recognize the local church. And that was a really interesting way to think about it. Membership doesn't make a local church. Membership tries to recognize the local church that does exist. Right? So God calls the universal body, but he also calls local specific bodies. And our hope, here's a local congregation, is to affirm that, yes, this person is indeed renewed by the Spirit. They are living in faith. They have been made alive. They've been restored from their sins. And so the church is certainly not the one that saves. The church is certainly not the one that makes that local body. But the church does recognize that. And through the Spirit tries to to say, yes, we do see that this person is indeed living in faith. Um, And I think that's that's a really important function of the church as a testimony as well. Because as, as Garrett frequently says, when we say this person is a member of Delaware Baptist Church, we're saying to everyone else that is watching, hey, this person, Ben Hamilton, is a follower of Christ. You can look to him and see how Jesus here on earth would be represented in, in a small, finite, limited way. Uh, and so I, membership is something that, that we do take very seriously because of that theological underpinning that the church is composed only of those that are truly alive, that have been born again, that have acknowledged their sin, that have
turned away and repented from that which was leading to destruction. So that's kind of, that's point one, the one calling, that there is, there is one calling for Christ's church. Christ, through God, is the one that, that calls his church. It's comprised of those that, that hope and trust in God and that have been saved by grace from their sins and have turned to him in faith. I think another, the next point that we're going to turn to is point two, that the church consists of one people. So this is going to turn our focus more towards who's inside the church and answer the question, who is it that is in Christ's church? And so we're going to continue walking through Ephesians in chapter 2. Could someone read verses 13 through 16 for me? And so the, the immediate context that Paul is thinking here, and you can see it back in verse 11, is the fact that God has brought Gentiles into what was previously just a Jewish faith. And so there's now been a reconciliation so that, that all people are now in the church. It's no longer just a Jewish thing. Um, but importantly in doing that, Paul says that you who are once far off have been brought near. And so I think that that's an important category that applies beyond just the Jew and Gentile split and really applies to all different categories that we might kind of establish in Christ's church. Um, The way that that God has done this, there in verse 14, he's broken down the wall of of hostility. So there were, it wasn't just that we were kind of disinterested in God, it was we were actively hostile towards God. God has broken that down, and by breaking down that vertical hostility, and also results in the horizontal hostility being done away with. So since I'm now at peace with God, then now it lets me be at peace with my fellow man. And so the Jews and Gentiles can now come together. Um, but I think we're going to see as we move into the second point. So, this, the, so, so as, as we talk about the unity of Christ's church, the big takeaway there in point A is that the, the church is unified without distinction in Christ. So whether it's Jew, whether it's Gentile, uh, we're not going to flip there, but certainly this concept shows up in a lot of other places in Scripture. So Galatians chapter 3 would be a good place to go. Um, talking about ethnic distinctions that we might draw, positional distinctions that we might draw, gender, income, age. Whatever the distinctions are that we might draw, Christ's church does not have those. We're unified without distinctions in Christ's church. Now we're going to talk just a minute how God has called and equipped different people within the church to do different things. But at the outset, in terms of who's in the church, those barriers that we might put up don't have any recognition in Scripture. So I think that that then drives us then to the next question, because that's a pretty big theological statement, that there is no distinction for those that are in the church. And so Paul's going to spend a good portion of the rest of Ephesians talking about how that actually happens. And the next point that he's going to bring up 
is just that unity, this unity that he's talking about and that he envisions, is going to require the church to walk in constant love. Um, skipping forward to Ephesians chapter 3, could someone read verses 14 through 19? So a similar question that we asked previously with Paul's prayer that we saw uh, in chapter 1, uh, what would you say the kind of the key takeaway here is? What is Paul praying for, for the church? What would be the, the plain, simple language way that you would say that? Yeah, Johnny, I think you're right, and I think that this really harkens back to what we saw at the end of chapter 1. What Paul's praying for here fundamentally, so that we can get to encouragement, is that we might know the love of Christ. So everything in verses 14 through 18 is really clauses, dependent phrases that are all building towards Paul's prayer that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you might be filled with the fullness of God. Um, I think it's also... Notice how, how we start this section. We start with a for this reason, which calls you to go back and look at what was Paul just talking about. <laughs> Why is he saying I'm praying for your love that you might know and comprehend the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of God? Well, it specifically comes from his discussion of the Jews and Gentiles being unified into the church. So you see there um, in verses, in verses not 8 and 9, He's talking about how he as an apostle was given grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery that had been hidden for ages in God who created all things. So through the manifold wisdom of God, Jews and Gentiles, once far off, once split, once divided, have now been brought together. Paul's saying this in a special way is showing God's wisdom. And it's for that reason, for the mystery of the gospel, for the unity of the church, that Christ is saying, or that, that Paul is praying for the church, that the church might know the love of God. Because I think when we start talking about true unity, um, we all have blind spots in ourselves about where um, there are other people groups that, that we don't really truly have unity with. Um, so I think... Sometimes it could be racial, certainly. There may be other people groups that we're just not as comfortable with. Maybe it's not an act of hostility, but maybe it's not the depth of love that Paul's really getting at here. I think sometimes this could also be through uh, income kind of barriers. 
So we do tend to be a very middle class church. Uh, and so I think maybe good questions for ourselves too are how good are we about breaking down those barriers? So James is gonna talk about how, hey, if someone shows up into your congregation and they don't have all the earrings and the fancy trappings, do you interact with them the same way as the person who's just like you and has all the goods of the world just like you? So I think for each of us, the fact that Paul has spent this much time in Ephesians talking about the underpinnings of this mystery, building to the point that he wants the church to know the depth of the love of God so that they can make this happen, I think this does call us to do a little bit of soul searching and to ask ourselves, where are we tempted to not see this unity that Paul is calling the church to have? What is it that, what, what is the, the people group in the church that maybe, um, that we don't see with the same eyes that Christ sees? Where have we placed a barrier that Christ has not, has not placed? I, I think this is really a radically inclusive gospel that we don't see elsewhere in the world. I think the world really, in our own sinful hearts, naturally do put up barriers where we judge ourselves against other person. I'm, I'm better than them because of X. I have a better position in life than them. I make more money than them. My background is superior to theirs. I think that's just natural. I think that's just fallenness in terms of how we think. And Paul's really going after that full bore in terms of how he's describing and displaying the church where that's all completely gone. That division, that wall of hostility that used to be between us and God, that used to be between us and our fellow man is eradicated. It's been completely taken away. And I think that one of the reasons, moving into point C there, that Paul is belaboring this point is because this unity really is showing the coming of the kingdom of God here on earth. So it's making Christ known here and now. Um, you see that in, especially in, we didn't read all these sections, but especially in, in chapter 2, verses 19, where we, we see that we are members of the household of God that are being built on the foundation of the apostles. And then skipping down to verse 22, you see that we're being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul uses that analogy here. This is a rich concept, the church making known the physically and in presence of this earth, making known the presence of God is a concept that just shows up richly throughout Scripture. So you think of elsewhere where we're described as ambassadors, we're described as the aroma of Christ. Peter is going to describe us as living stones that are being built on the, the cornerstone of Christ Jesus. We're described in 1 Corinthians as the body of Christ, as in actually like the, the fingers and the eyes and the hands and the ears. And so Paul's spending a lot of time talking about how the church shows the coming knowledge and wisdom of God. Um, and I think that we... So look, for, look with me in... Uh, pick up in uh, Ephesians 3, chapter 10. So he does this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith with him. I think there's, so I think (laughs) 
if I was tracking along here, I think that probably what I would expected next is the church, uh, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to those that don't believe, right? That might be made known to all the peoples and all tribes, tongues, and nations. Paul's thinking on a bit of a different plane here, though. He's not, so certainly, the church shows the wisdom of God through its unity so that your unbelieving neighbor or coworker might know the gospel. But I think there's also a spiritual context in which God is showing to even the angels and the demons that are watching that his church is showing his character here on earth through its unity in a way that is showing God's wisdom throughout all space, time, and eternity. So I think there's a a three-dimensional aspect here that I think is important to keep in mind because that's where Paul's application goes as he thinks about this concept. Um, All right, so we're going to... Are there any... Yeah, so let me pause there real quick. So on that second point with the one people who's in the church, church unified without distinction, are there any comments, any thoughts? All right. So it takes us to the the third point. I'm going to conclude our time in looking at the one body of the church. So while we spent the previous section really talking about primarily the unity, how all people of the church are unified together in Christ through the Spirit, how the church functions specifically, how all those people fit together and all those members fit together. God gives different grace and calls different people to do different things within his church. And so this, this third point helps us answer the question, how is the church to actually function? Um, so point A there, Paul's going to launch into this section. We're in Ephesians chapter 4 now as we've kind of been walking through Ephesians Paul's going to launch into this section with another call for the the body to be unified. So can someone read for me Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6? Yeah, so even as, even as we come to how this is going to be flushed out specifically, Paul's going to reiterate the call for this to be done in humility and for this to be done in gentleness, in patience, and in love. I think the other thing um, just to note here at the outset is that Paul spent a good chunk of time telling us that we're not divided He's also going to provide us with specifically what we're united around. So you know, there's, there's seven things specifically that are mentioned there in verses 4, 5, and 6. Um, the one body, 
one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father. So that's, that's certainly Trinitarian essence there. You see the, the Spirit, you see the Lord, you see God and Father mentioned. Um, so maybe just a question. Paul specifically defines the, the things that we are defined around. Maybe what are some things that we tend to, to replace these with? As we define the church, as we think about what unifies the church, what are, what are other areas that we tend to, to maybe add onto this list or throw into this list that might not, might not be what Paul's thinking about? Yeah. How, how do you see that show up specifically, you think? So generally, I mean, so you, you see it in age somewhat, but more so just kind of situation of life. So young singles, uh, young married couples, married couples with kids, that sort of thing. People are hanging out with those who are in similar life stages. Hmm. That's good. What other areas? Russell? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Or even within a church, we're going to segregate by like different worship styles and different services. Merck? Maybe some, you know how I think that Paul said it's I follow Paulos, I follow. I think sometimes within church we may say, well, particular prominent follow teacher or leader. Yeah, no, that's good. And kind of like a judgmental approach to how we think about that. Yeah. Inside the church, too. Inside the local church, you might gravitate toward one pastor or another. I mean, I couldn't quite agree. Mm. It's not like you're saying anything about external teachers, but yeah. we also inside the church gravitate toward, toward the pastor or a particular person and can see persons other than Christ filling that role. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Josh? Mm. So like the church kind of becomes like a political action committee in a way, like yeah. this is our mission. Yeah. Are there known Um, and Josh, I think your, your point too, that this isn't just something that like, oh, other Christians do. Like, <laughs> this is something that we do. This is something that we're tempted to um, in terms of things that we want to be the uniting principle of our church that are not one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. That's the foundation that we're all united around. So all these other things that we would be tempted to kind of throw in there subtly, maybe without even realizing it, if we're not guarding against that, um, I think are, are good things to, to check our own heart and check our own souls on. Um, okay, so, so Paul's going to start this section here with the unity of the body, reminding us what we're unified on. And then he's going to say, though, that God has, has gifted the body in different ways. 
Uh, so can someone read verses uh, 4, 7 through 11 for me? Uh, no, we, we can stop right there. We'll, we'll pick up in a second. Um, yeah, so thanks. So there's a little list there of some of the, of the gifts and callings um, that, that Paul's specifically thinking of. What other... I don't, so I don't interpret this list as like categorical, like if it's not on this list, it's not a gift or a calling that God has given to his church. I think in, in 1 Corinthians, there's another list that has some similarity and some overlap. That, uh, but also includes additional things that aren't here. So I think I think Paul's thinking kind of broadly, but just kind of out as a question: what what are what are, so one what are some of the gifts that you notice here, and then maybe what are some other things that you think about when you think of specific gifts that God has given to His church? Um, yeah, so probably a gift to the, like the corporate body. Unity is a gift that he gives to the entire church. Um, I don't know if that's like an individual. I don't know if I think of that as an individual gift. Like Mark has a gift of unity, hopefully. There's <laughs> a part to the whole, or whole to the part kind of thing. Hmm. Is administration a gift? Yes. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, so I, we didn't go there, but it actually that's actually the word that 1 Corinthians 12 uses. I'm not a Greek expert, so I have no idea what the, if administrating is a Greek word or not, but it does show up in, in, the English, in your English Bibles <laughs> as a gift of the Spirit. Um, so what you, thoughts on... Uh, are some gifts more important than other gifts? What would you guys What would you guys say about that? Ads of goodness, uh, 
and, and of mercy, but all some of them are, are more like a, a little ship character, which you would seem to be before everyone. So I won't say that one of them are more important than the others, but some of them carry more responsibility than the other scale. Yeah, yeah. certainly, certainly. spiritual accountability for elders overseeing the souls of the congregation that doesn't exist with every gift and calling in the church. Absolutely. Yeah, Mike? So, I think I have probably a different answer. So I think yes, but also no at the same time. So <coughs> yes in the sense that there are distinctions. Mm. So what Paul writes about saying, you know, the potter can make some clay into something for fine purposes, mm -hmm. another for common, another to be thrown into the fire. Um, I mean, there's distinctions there um, that sort of compute in a, sort of an importance. But at the end, it's all God. Right? Yeah. So it's a yes, but it's not in any way that imputes importance to the individual. It's the giver. So I'm not sure if I'm saying something different now. I kind of think of it also in the same way that you know, all sin will take you to hell. Mm -hmm. All sin, you're equally condemned for, for our sin, even if someone's, that person's a murderer and I'm a liar. Yeah. God does draw a distinction between those sins. You know, the murder he sees is more terrible than the lie. Yeah. Um, so I think there are these distinctions, but so they're yes, but also no because in the end it's still all God, mm -hmm. it's still all sin, sort of in that mirror. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, th I think you guys are hitting on some great points. Um, one that like this isn't when we think of gifts, it's not something that like you do per se. It's the Spirit working through you to do that, and also that God does require all parts of the body and calls all parts of the body to do different things. So from a, a value standpoint, one member is not any less valuable than the other. So 1 Corinthians 12, we didn't really go there, um, but that would be a good, just encourage maybe to, to go look back at that one. He was talking about the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. I absolutely needs the hand. And even the, uh, what's the wording that he uses? 
the less honorable, on, honorable, I think is the word that he uses, less honorable parts of the body. Um, the other thing I'd just say, though, so I think Paul does give a little bit of, of ordering to some of the gifts. So here in, in 1 12, uh, Corinthians 12, 27 through 31, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed to the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. So I think that there is some recognition in how Paul thinks about the gifts, that there's, there are different measures of faith that God has given to all, just like in the parable of the talents, some got five, some got one. So God has given us all different things. But there should be a desire to, to press in, to grow that, to strengthen it, to increase it, so that your gift, both the giftings that you have and that you don't have, that your grace grows in those areas. And I think that's something that, that we are called to do in response to the gift that God has given to us. So it's not, there isn't complete passivity. God does take the action, but we are called in response to that. Um, so there's... So between those two lists in, in Corinthians and Ephesians, Paul mentions apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, shepherds. He also mentions healing, miracles, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Um, so we're not going to get into a conversation today about the continuation of like, the sign gifts and all that. <laughs> That'll be a separate conversation for a separate day. <laughs> we've, got, we've got like five minutes left, Josh. That's not happening. So, um, yeah, so kind of with that list and kind of with that, that context of us responding, God working through us, us responding to God in faith and seeking to grow our gifts and seeking to grow the ways that we can serve the church because that's why God has given these gifts to the church. We're going to mention that here in just a second. Um, but maybe what are some of the ways that we might be tempted to think wrongly about some of these gifts? So some of this kind of came up a little bit in our conversation previously. Or maybe what are some of the ways that we might, we might approach the fact that God has given me this gift or God has given you that gift? What are some ways that we might approach this wrongly? Being judgmental or prideful. Yeah. Yeah. Like I have a better gift than you do. Mm-hmm. Your gift's not as valuable to me. Right, which is really not a mature way to think yeah. at all. So, Josh? Even if those gifts that are naturally more visible to the body are more important in this life than the gifts you have, that's not the case. Mm. Yeah, so discontentment. Like, why did God make me this way? Why did God make me the hand and not the eye or something like that? Yeah, that's good. Other? Ben? I think it's just forgetting what gifts are um, and just thinking of gifts as... as yeah just like a sense of individualism it's me and it's not the, the the whole body the church that paul's really writing about here yeah that's good yeah, i think that i think that in our in our flesh we we quickly forget that these are gifts of the Spirit. This is the Spirit working through us, and so it can quickly become prideful, judgmental, compare us to other people, discontent with where we're currently at, spiritless, self-serving. I think we can quickly go there with this if we're not 
careful and we don't remember how Paul spent the entire first, chap- first couple chapters of the book building to this. Uh, so when I, when I first wanted to teach this lesson, I kind of wanted to start here. I kind of wanted to start with this is the body, these are the gifts, this is the way that God has called us. When you look at the way Paul's laid out Ephesians, there's so many for this reasons, whereas, as we're, you know, let's see, the logic doesn't start here. This is kind of the conclusion of the logic that started back with Paul's explanation in chapter 1 and moving through the unity of the body that we have in chapter 2 and chapter 3, building towards the fact that, all right, so God has done this, God has given you this unity, and now here's how you kind of act within that, right? So the response, what we do, follows after we've looked at what God has done and how God has unified the church and God has called the church and established the church and saved the church. It all kind of has built upon what Paul's talked about previously. Um, so I think that, yeah, there's a, there's a call to us to respond to what God has done in saving us and redeeming us and in gifting us and to use those gifts to serve the body. And so that's what we'll, we'll close here just on point C, the growth of the body. Um, can someone read verses uh, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16? So he's given these gifts in order to do the following things. Josh. Yeah, so as Ben just mentioned a moment ago, all these gifts, all these callings have a purpose, they have a point, and it's so that the the body, the church, might build itself up in love. I think it really gets back to what we talked about in the first point, that God really wants his people to know himself and to know his love and to be filled with his fullness. Part of the way that we do that is by helping each other with our different gifts and callings so that together we might be built up in the love of God, that we might see the love of God in the way that you serve me and that I serve you. And that's put on special display through these gifts and callings that God has given us. Uh, so I think the, the call just to the church, to the body of the church, is to live out that calling, right? Spend some time thinking about it. One of the ways that God has gifted me, I don't know the utility of like coming up with like a list and trying to tie it specifically to the ones that you see Paul mention. But I do think it's, it is important to stop and think about what are the gifts that God has given me, and how am I using them to serve? Am I using that to serve his body? Am I using that to love other people? Am I doing with the gifts the intent that God has given them to do for me? Um, and then just as we mentioned previously, it's not like any one of these gifts that the church can do without. We all need each other. The eye needs the hand. And so each one of us is called... To, to live together in an understanding way, to walk with one another in unity, and to use our gifts for the service of the body. And if that doesn't happen, if there's one member that isn't living out its calling, then the rest of the body is going to feel that. 
And I think that uh, <laughs> we know this just anatomically, and Paul kind of makes that point that you know even if your your pinky you know gets slammed in the door, like it's not a big part, but you really feel it, right? Like you know that your pinky's not right, <laughs> and it hurts. So I think there's that too, um, and maybe just to conclude here is just that I think there's a lot of there's a lot of empathy for one another that comes through living in a body, so that when another member is hurting. You're hurting alongside with them. We're weeping with those who weep. We're carrying their burdens and carrying their sorrows with us. Um, and that's all part of the church living the gospel and showing the love of Christ to one another. So, anyways, so that's where we're going to conclude for today. Does anybody have any final thoughts or questions? Merck, do you want to close us out in prayer? Encourage us as we hear from uh, Brother Gary.